Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me once again to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Over a year ago, we began a series on the life of Moses. We're going to wrap that up next Sunday. This is the next to last message. Deuteronomy chapter 32, in a moment we'll begin reading in verse 19. There's a statement that I've heard a lot over the years. I found myself making it a few times. It goes like this. I wish I had known then what I know now. Perhaps you think back on some decision you made or some mistake that you made, and you think to yourself, man, if I had just had the knowledge and the wisdom and the experience back then that I have now, I might have done some things differently. Well, I have some good news for you this morning. The good news is you can know today what you will wish you had known tomorrow. You really can. And you can know it because God has given to us all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge that we need right here in his word. He's given it to us in advance. Now, we're seeing an example of that in this passage that we're studying this morning. As you know, this is the second half of a message that I began last Sunday. Moses is about to die, and he knows that he's about to die. God called him and Joshua to the tabernacle, and there God told Moses about a future generation that would come, a generation that would forget him. And therefore, God taught Moses a song. And he told Moses to teach this song to Israel so that they would teach it to their children so that one day, eventually, down the road, when this generation comes, they would sing the words of a song that they grew up singing, and then suddenly it would make sense. We all have songs that we sang when we were children that we did not understand at the time, but later on in life we did come to understand. Well, that's the idea in Deuteronomy chapter 32. This song did stick with them. This song became part of Israel's culture. This song in Deuteronomy 32, it is quoted about 30 times in the New Testament. Now, they quoted it because they knew it, and they knew it because they sang it. We tend to remember what we sing That's why it's important what songs we sing and what those songs are teaching and what those songs are saying about God. Well, as I said last week, this song is about Israel, but it is full of applications for us. The same things that they needed to be reminded of, sometimes we need to be reminded of as well. In the first half of this song, we saw that we need to be reminded 
of God's unchanging nature. We need to be reminded of God's goodness to his people. We need to be reminded of God's response to our rebellion. This morning, we're going to see three more things along those lines. A forgetful people needs to know about the removal of God's blessings. The removal of God's blessings. Look at verse 19. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. What will God do with this generation who forgets him? It says he spurns them, but notice this. It says he hides his face from them. Now, hey, we've all had times in our lives where it seemed like God was hiding. But that is not what verse 20 is about. This verse is about God hiding himself from those who intentionally, purposefully replace God with what is false. God hides his face from them, it says, in that he withdraws his presence, he withdraws his blessings, he withdraws his peace and his protection from those who have forgotten him. And please don't miss this. It's not that God hid from them and therefore they replaced him with idols. No, the people turned to idols and therefore God hid himself from them. You see, it always happens in that order. And it says God hides his face to see what their end will be. It's not that God doesn't know what their end will be. It's not that God doesn't know what the result of their sin and their rebellion will be. Oh, God already knows, but listen, he's going to allow them to see it for themselves. He allows them to learn, and sometimes he allows us to learn for ourselves what happens when we forget him. Look at verse 21. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Last week we saw that God is a jealous God and that his jealousy is actually rooted in love because he loves us and desires the best for us. Yes, God is jealous of anything and everything that we would allow to take his place. And because God is jealous, it says he provokes them to jealousy. How? By showing favor to another by the way, there is a prophetic side to this verse. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse in the book of Romans describing how many of the Jews rejected the Messiah and therefore God showed favor to another, to a people who was not a people by opening the door for Gentiles to receive the gospel. But Moses uses uh, an illustration in this text is kind of a humorous illustration to show us what it looks like when God removes his blessings from us. Look at verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel. 
nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Listen to this. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? Moses said, if only they had wisdom, if only they had understanding, this is what they would see and know. And he uses this illustration, and of course there's some hyperbole here, but just use your imagination and imagine there's going to be this great battle, and your army has 1,000 soldiers. Now imagine you show up to the battle and you see that the other army has Bershon. Just him, nobody else. Now, he's a veteran. I'm sure he's a great soldier. But do you like your chances? And then Moses uses another illustration. He says, okay, let's just imagine you have 10,000 soldiers and you go out to fight Two, Brishon and Hector. Again, great guys. But do you like your chances? Absolutely. And then he says, imagine you go out to battle with your 10,000 soldiers, and there's the enemy. They only have two people. And now imagine those two soldiers whip the tar out of your 10,000. now here's the point Moses is saying would you not scratch your head and think to yourself maybe God has something to do with this I mean if this were to happen you would know that it could only happen if God made it happen And that's the point. You see, God will work in your life in such a way that there can be no doubt that he is the one doing it. And God doesn't have to speak in a big, loud, audible voice in order for that to happen. He can work in ways in your life. He can work against you in ways that you just know, hey, this cannot happen be coincidence. It's not even logical for you to deny it. And anybody can see it. Look at what he says in verse 31. For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Our enemies, even they can see what is happening. God will work in our lives so that even non-believers Look at us and see what's going on. And even they say to us, <laughs> I think God's trying to get your attention. Are you paying attention? Well, one of the ways God does this, one of the ways God removes his blessings is by diminishing our ability to enjoy the fruit of our sin. Look at verse 32. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, 
and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Notice that God will allow you to drink from the vines of Sodom and Gomorrah, but you won't really enjoy it. You might for a while, but Moses said, it's like gall. It's bitter. He said, it's like drinking venom. And even if you do get some temporary pleasure from your sin, from your rebellion, then what? What happened to Sodom? What happened to Gomorrah? Destruction. And that's it. That's the reward of rebellion that we have to look forward to. And by the way, that is why you should never be envious of wicked people. No matter how famous they are, no matter how rich they are, no matter how good-looking they are, no matter what they have that you would love to have, you should never, ever be envious of the wicked. Look at verse 36. It says, For the Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. When? When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free, he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Notice what God does for forgetful people. He waits until their strength is gone. He allows them to get to the end of their rope. He allows them to see for themselves that the false gods they chose to worship simply cannot save them and cannot satisfy them. He says, okay, you want to trust in these other gods? Let's see what happens when trials and tribulations come into your life. Let's see if these other gods you have chosen can help you. And of course, they can't. There's this statement. It was inspired by something that Chris Wright said. He said, false gods never fail to fail. False gods, meaning anything in your life that takes the place that God deserves, False gods, they never fail to fail. In other words, they will always disappoint you. But then he added this statement. False gods never fail to fail, and man never fails to forget. Isn't that true? Well, what do we need to remember? What does a future generation need to remember that has forgotten God? They need to remember what happens, and that is the removal of God's blessings. And we see in this song several ways in which that takes place. But there's something else that a forgetful generation needs to remember, and we need to remember as well, and that is, listen to me carefully, the fierceness of God's judgment. Guys, I'm going to warn you at this point much of this song that Moses taught the people is very 
harsh. It's going to sound very dark. This is not what you would call the power of positive thinking. Moses takes a very good part of this song, and he describes God's judgment, maybe in a way you have never heard God's judgment described before. He describes God's judgment in a way that ought to stop us in our tracks and put the fear of God in our hearts. And my prayer is that as I read these next few verses, this would not just be words on a page or words on a screen. My prayer is that we look at this and we let this sink in. That we would actually let this have the effect that God wants it to have. It's not pleasant. But God knows that they needed to hear it and we need to hear it. So just listen to verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside, for there shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Think for just a moment about the language that's being used here. Fire, hell, disaster, arrows, hunger, devoured, pestilence, bitter destruction, beasts, poison, serpents, sword, terror. Moses is reaching as deep down as he can into his bag of Hebrew vocabulary to use every single word that he can to describe the greatness of God's wrath against sin and the fierceness of God's judgment for those whose sins are not forgiven. And you know what? Moses goes on to tell him, it could have been worse. Go back to verse 26. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. 
Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. Now, this is what we call anthropomorphic language. When God says, had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, please understand that does not mean that God was afraid of anything his enemies might say or do. It means if God had given his people what they deserved, he already knew what some of his enemies would say. They would say, oh, their God was not able to save them. You see, God's desire is for the nations to know him and love him and worship him. And for that reason, for that purpose, his wrath is actually withheld for a while. But meanwhile, the Bible says that God's wrath is being stored up. Look at verse 34. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Sometimes it may seem like God is never going to judge sin, but Moses said that judgment is being stored up. That kind of reminds us of what Paul said to the Romans. In Romans 2, 5, he said that some of you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. All of God's wrath, all of those terrible things that we saw back in verse 22, it's like it's being stored up, stored up, stored up, until eventually it's like the, the breaking of a dam and that wrath is unleashed like a flood. God says it will happen because vengeance is mine. And by the way, let me point out that this verse is quoted in the New Testament as the reason why we as Christians are never to seek vengeance. Because if someone wrongs us or hurts us and we seek vengeance against them, we're actually doubting whether or not God will seek vengeance. We're doubting God's justice. We're basically saying God will not enact justice, therefore I have to do it for him. And when we do that, we're undermining the gospel because the heart of the gospel is that God is so holy and he is so just that he was willing to give his only begotten son to die on the cross in order to satisfy the law's demands. But we don't have to worry about whether or not God will judge evil. Moses said, verse 35, their foot will slip. Their calamity is at hand. It's not a matter of if. The Bible says it's just a matter of when he will do it. You skip down to verse 39. God does something unusual. He even swears that he will do it. Now see that I, even I, am he. And there is no God besides me. He's not the head of a pantheon. No, he's the only God. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. 
nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Now notice this. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Now we know that every word God says is true but sometimes, just to emphasize for us how serious God is, God will actually take an oath. Now, normally, when we take an oath, we swear by something that is bigger or greater than ourselves. Well, there's no one greater than God. So God swears by himself. And notice what he says. He said, I lift up my hand and I say, as I live forever. I want you to think about that statement. Think about what God is doing. He is saying, as sure as I live, as sure as I exist, I will judge. I want you to think about that. You can't even talk about God without talking about his judgment because the moment you remove judgment from the conversation, it is no longer God you are talking about. Because a God who does not judge sin is not God at all. God bases his own existence on the fact that he will, in fact, judge sin. A man by the name of J. Orr said this. He said, a God who is incapable of moral indignation would be equally incapable of moral love and could not, with truth, be spoken of as dispensing mercy. Wrath and love are opposite poles of one affection. That's so true. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. They're two sides of the same coin. What we are reading in God's Word today, man, it is not popular it's not popular in this world. It's not popular in churches. You don't hear this preached very often, not in many places. But listen to me carefully. A God who cannot destroy evil cannot help us. A God who weeps over evil but cannot do anything about it is not worthy of our worship. And when we look around and we see the stuff that's happening in the world today, when we see apartment buildings full of innocent people being demolished by Russian missiles, for example, isn't it good to know in that moment that the God we serve is holy and just? He is able and willing to stand up to evil. He is patient and he's long-suffering because he does not want any to perish, but he will judge. He will stand up to every evil tyrant who comes along. They are here today. They're gone tomorrow. And meanwhile, God is still on his throne. What do we need to remember? A generation that has forgotten him. The removal, God's blessings, the fierceness of God's judgment 
But then there's one more thing we need to remember, and that is the promise of atonement. Look at the last verse of this song, which is verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. This song has a surprise ending. I mean, first of all, it's written for a future generation of Israelites who have forgotten the Lord. But then when we get down to the very end, the last verse, Moses calls out to the Gentiles. That Hebrew word is goyim. It's the basic Hebrew word for nations. He says, rejoice goyim rejoice gentiles rejoice all you nations why why are we to rejoice let's see because god will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his abject wait a second i don't know about you but that doesn't make me feel like rejoicing if that statement stopped right there we'd all be in a whole heap of trouble. If God's response to sin is wrath and we are sinners, then that would mean that God's wrath would fall upon us. And the fact that God is going to bring vengeance upon sinners, that's not reason for us sinners to rejoice. That would actually be reason for us to fear and that would be reason for us to mourn. So why is it that Moses tells us to rejoice? Now, the reason why we can rejoice is because of how that verse ends. It says, he will provide atonement for his land and his people. He will provide what? Say it again. He will provide what? Atonement. That word atonement means to appease to pacify, and at its root in the Hebrew, it comes from that word meaning to cover. Just like when Noah built the ark and then he covered it, the Bible says, with pitch. So keep that image in your mind, that image of covering something. This word for atonement, this is a word that we see again and again and again in the book of Leviticus in describing the sacrifices. For example, on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the holy of holies and offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people, to cover the sins of the people. But that sacrifice was meant to point the people to a future sacrifice it was but a temporary covering you say well pastor how do we know that you know that because moses tells us right here god's not telling the nations to rejoice because of any animal sacrifice the sacrificial system had already been installed they already had that this atonement in verse 43, the one that should cause the nations to rejoice, this is something different. This is something bigger. This is something greater. One day there will be an atonement 
that will be able to cover the sin of the whole world, causing the nations to rejoice. Of course, we know what that atonement is. And in Romans 15, we are explicitly told Paul quotes this verse and tells us that that atonement of which Moses spoke was, in fact, Jesus. He came from heaven to earth. He took on flesh. He bore in himself the punishment of our sin. He came under the curse that belongs to us so that we might come under the blessings that belong to him. God's wrath, which we read so much about in this song, God's judgment, it fell upon Jesus so that it doesn't have to fall upon us. He is our atonement. His death covers all who believe. And I hope you see how amazing this is. I mean, think about this. Moses, this is the same man who authored, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This same Moses, who took pinned parchment and pinned those words, he taught Israel to sing this song that they would teach to their children. And the final line of the song that Moses taught them to sing is God's promise to provide a sacrifice that will atone not only for their sin, but the sin of the whole world. On August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport and it killed 155 people. There was, however, one survivor, a four-year-old girl named Cecilia. Now, when the uh, first responders arrived on the scene and they found that little girl, at first they did not believe that she could have even been on that plane because of her lack of injuries. But as they looked into it further and as they looked at the list of passengers, there was her name. And it turns out that Cecilia survived that crash because when the plane was falling, her mother took off her own seatbelt and she got down on her knees in front of her daughter and she wrapped her arms and her legs around that little girl and she would not let go. Taking the blunt force trauma upon herself and shielding that little girl. She literally covered that girl with her own body. Well, folks, just like that little girl caught in the middle of this disaster, we have been trapped by our own sin. And we're spiraling down to an inevitable doom, but God loved us so much that he left heaven and he came down just like that mother. He came down to our level and covered us with the sacrifice of his own body so that by believing in him, we might 
be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as great as your wrath is, as fierce as your judgment is, you have provided us with atonement. You kept the promise that you made through Moses that one day there would be that atoning sacrifice that would cover our sins so that whosoever believes will be saved so that not just Israel, but the nations can experience this and rejoice and be saved. God, we thank you that we get to be a part of this. We thank you that you did indeed send Jesus to do what you said you would do, that he came and offered his own body when he died upon the cross, that he became our atoning sacrifice to cover our sin so that your wrath, having fallen upon him, need not fall upon us. So God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have provided a way, that you provided forgiveness and salvation. And yes, God, so much of what we read in this passage today, God, this is hard to swallow, especially in this day and time and this culture in which we live. This world doesn't even want to think about you in these ways. But Father, would you help us to take everything that we've read in this passage, everything about your love and everything about your holiness and your justice and your wrath, and take it all in. And Father, go out from this place and tell the world that they need not experience the fierceness of your wrath and your judgment because Jesus came and did it for us. Thank you, God, for giving us this good news, for giving us this glorious gospel that whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. God, if there are any here today who need to take that step, who need to surrender their hearts and lives to Christ, God, I pray that this really would be the day of their salvation, that right now you'd knock on the door of their heart, that right now they would look down at those words in verse 22 and, and see just how serious their sin is and just how real your judgment is. And that they would come to Christ and call upon him as Savior and Lord. Father, have your way and show us all how to take the things that we've read in your word today. There's so much here. Show us how to take this and apply all this to our lives. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.